Hi, just a quick heads up. This episode has big spoilers. Watch the movie and then listen. Eyes on the Prize 2, March 3rd, 1989, Bill O'Neill interview. The very first face we see in Judas and the Black Messiah is not Chairman Fred Hampton's. It's the character of William O'Neill, played by Lakeith Stanfield. It's a reenactment of an actual interview O'Neill did for the award-winning civil rights PBS series, Eyes on the Prize. Keep it rolling, we'll just get like a bonus one of these. Somebody wipe it down, sweat it It's a short scene. O'Neill doesn't have any lines, just nervous throat clearing. He's sullen and twitchy, sweating in his jacket and tie. <clears throat> Looking back on your activities in the late 60s, early 70s, what would you tell your son about what you did then? Chairman Fred Hampton was killed in 1969. Four years later, O'Neill was outed as an FBI informant, and he temporarily went into hiding. And then, in 1989, he sat for his only on-camera interview and tried to explain himself. I'm Elvis Mitchell. Welcome back to the official podcast of Judas and the Black Messiah, the exciting new Golden Globe Award-winning film from director Shaka King. In this episode, we're taking a closer look at William O'Neill, the career criminal turned FBI informant who betrayed the Black Panthers and Chairman Fred Hampton. Later, Chairman Fred Hampton Jr. and I will talk to Lakeith Stanfield about betraying the man who helped orchestrate the murder of a Black activist folk hero. Although the film centers on Chairman Fred Hampton Sr., most of the dramatic tension is built around William O'Neill, the film's Judas. An opening scene sets up much of the premise. All right, playtime's over. All right, everybody grab a fucking wall. What the hell is this? I just paid O'Malley last week. You hear me? Do I look like some two-bit shakedown artist to you? What the fuck does this say? The initials. FBI. FBI, that's right, big guy. Hey, where you going? Come back here, clown. O'Neill bursts into a local pool hall, flashing a fake FBI badge. He takes the patron's car keys, gets chased out the door, peels off in the stolen car, and gets caught almost immediately by the cops. O'Neill's fake ID lands him in front of a federal agent, played by Jesse Plemons. The character is based on an actual FBI agent named Roy Mitchell. Now, tell me, why the badge? Why not just use a knife or a gun like a normal car thief? Badge is scarier than a gun. You're looking at 18 months for the stolen car and five years for impersonating a federal officer. Or you can go home. William O'Neill agrees to infiltrate the Chicago Panthers and funnel information to Agent Mitchell. For the rest of the film, we watch as that bargain turns the car thief into the FBI's puppet. We don't learn much about William O'Neill over the course of Judas and the Black Messiah. That's partly because it wasn't easy for the filmmakers to put together O'Neill's life story. So much of what I know about William O'Neill, we filled in the blanks. Director Shaka King, along with writer Will Burson, researched the film for years. They drew largely on O'Neill's Eyes on the Prize interview, some newspaper reports, and a very rare book about O'Neill's life after Chairman Fred Hampton's murder. I paid like $800 for this book. It's called The Badge They're Trying to Bury. There's no copies of it. It's by this guy 
who was framed by William O'Neill in the 70s. And it's the most information I could, what we could find about William O'Neill. It talks about William O'Neill and Roy Mitchell and their relationship and, you know, describes Roy Mitchell in some detail. Which, and that was the only thing I ever read besides his obituary where I could find anything about Roy Mitchell. The filmmakers uncovered very few details about O'Neill's early life. He was born in 1949 in Maywood, West Chicago, the same middle-class neighborhood where Chairman Fred Sr. grew up. O'Neill was less than a year younger. He told Eyes on the Prize that he wanted to be a cop when he was a kid. Shaka describes him as kind of a dandy. There's not a lot of photos of him available from the era, but I think in the two I've looked at, you could tell this guy's like a fop, you know? He might, I think he has a, an ascot on in one of them. That's the one I've seen, that one, where he basically looks like he's posing for a picture in Esquire magazine. Yeah, and um, he's very young, you know? O'Neill says that he got involved in criminal-type things when he was growing up. He once told a relative that he'd been in trouble for everything from car theft and home invasion to kidnapping and torture. So, you know, who's William O'Neill? He's, he's a thief and an opportunist. And if I'm going to sort of really get into his psychology, he's a guy who thinks that he deserves more than what the world is offering him. And not only is he willing to acquire that by larcenous means, but he takes joy in manipulating others. FBI agent Roy Mitchell recruited O'Neill around 1968. O'Neill says he was proud to be working undercover for the agency. He says it felt like doing something good for the finest police organization in America. When Chairman Fred Hampton and several other Panthers opened their office in West Chicago, Agent Mitchell called O'Neill. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover had recently targeted militant black nationalists. The plan was to crush groups like the Black Panther Party. Mitchell wanted O'Neill to infiltrate the local chapter. At the time, O'Neill knew very little about the party. He thought it was, as he put it, just another gang. O'Neill went to the New Chicago Panthers office and signed up. He eventually graduated from gopher and handyman to captain of the security cadre. He wants that shit. Because, again, the same reason he wanted to be a cop. Because he wants to have the gun on his hip and say, you do this, you do that. And it's funny because speaking to a few Panthers, when they talked about him, they talked about how he was an asshole and he was bossy, you know, and he was lazy. And, of course, he wanted to be in charge of, of the security cadre, you know, or a security captain. My memory of O'Neill is that he was a very scurvy, slimy type of motherfucker. Anytime he was around, you were very uncomfortable. Stan McKinney was a rank-and-file member of the Illinois Panthers. He did security for several party leaders. Stan remembers O'Neill would often ignore the party's decision-making structure. And this dude would always come... And he tried to circumvent that process and interject his own subjective demands. But I I think for the most part, most of the party members that were pretty uh, keen, they seen him as suspect Joe. Yep. O'Neill had did a lot of uh, questionable things. And on two different occasions... He was brought before the leadership. 
Billy J. Brooks served as Deputy Minister of Education for the Illinois Panthers. He and another Illinois Panther tried to get O'Neill disciplined by the chapter. And uh, I remember particularly, you know, I was one of his accusers. With that being said, he was vouched for on both occasions. Still, Che's suspicion of O'Neill never went away. He was just a, a, a criminal, you know. Uh, O'Neill could get you drugs, he could get you guns, he could get you vehicles. He, he, he just could get you anything you wanted. So he made himself useful so he could infiltrate, basically, is what you're saying. Yeah. For the next year, O'Neill funneled intel about the Chicago Panthers to Roy Mitchell. Their meetings looked just like you might imagine a meeting between an FBI agent and his undercover informant. In a dimly lit basement bar around lunchtime, somewhere in downtown Chicago. They'd have drinks, and O'Neill would tell Mitchell everything he knew about what the local party members were up to, even their personal lives, and Chairman Fred's every move. Mitchell listened, took mental notes. It's unclear if O'Neill was still working off the stolen car case or if he just loved being undercover, especially since he was now being paid, sometimes 300 to 500 bucks per meetup. In Judas and the Black Messiah, the interviewer asks O'Neill about that relationship. What made you think you could trust Roy Mitchell? Uh, I rode around in his car, I had dinner with him at his dinner table. Um, you know, he was... At one point, for me, he was like a role model uh, when I didn't have one. You know, we had very few role models back then. We had uh, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, uh, Muhammad Ali. I had an FBI agent. These are O'Neill's actual words. As he saw it, he wasn't just Mitchell's CI or confidential informant. They were friends. To help him show in the film how complex his relationship was, Shaka King and writer Will Burson picked up every detail they could about the real life of Agent Roy Mitchell. One of the things that was a real revelation for myself and Will was discovering that he worked on the Freedom Riders case. This was the famous case of three civil rights activists who were murdered by the Ku Klux Klan in Mississippi in 1964. That made him really interesting to us, that he would be working on that case years apart from working on essentially crushing the Illinois chapter of the Black Panthers. It was that and the way that O'Neill talked about Roy Mitchell as this sort of avuncular figure. I remember reading an obituary and it, talking about how he had this uncanny ability to turn CIs, but the way that they described the way he would turn CIs, he was like very honest and direct with them and almost painted him as this sort of honorable guy. Mitchell would take O'Neill to the FBI office. He held Mitchell's children and spent time in the agent's home. Shaka depicted this dynamic in the film. Come on in, make yourself at home in the den. This is Samantha. Don't let Hampton fool you. The Panthers and the Klan are one and the same. Their aim is to sow hatred and inspire terror. Plain and simple. Now, I'm all for civil rights, but you can't cheat your way to equality. And you, you certainly can't shoot your way to it. Yep. Anyway, I, I'm going to go get those dogs going. No, no, sit down. You're a guest. 
Uh, if you want a taste of the good stuff, there's a bottle of scotch in this bottom cabinet there. You can help yourself. Hey, how much money you make, man? It's, uh... It's living. So, like, say I get you, like, some good information. Uh, something nobody else knows. Is it some kind of bonus or well, something? Well, I'm... I'm counting on it, Bill. But to answer your question, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. In the summer of 1969, O'Neill began supplying Mitchell with diagrams of Panther's spaces, including a floor plan of the party's main office in West Chicago. Several months later, a Black Panther named Spurgeon Jake Winters was killed in a shootout with the police. Two cops also died, according to O'Neill, where Mitchell went to their funeral and was hurt by those deaths. O'Neill said Mitchell wanted to help the police department do something about it. During one of their meetings, Mitchell asked O'Neill, who had been inside the Illinois chapter for about a year, for another diagram. This time, he wanted to get the layout of Chairman Fred Hampton's apartment. In Judas and the Black Messiah, William O'Neill is stunned at the implication that law enforcement was going into the apartment to kill Chairman Fred Hampton. Hey, Roy boy, how are you? You've been to Hampton's apartment, right? Right. Good, I need you to draw me a blueprint of the place. I don't understand, uh... You don't have to understand, Bill. You just have to draw me that blueprint. Are you gonna kill him, Roy? Huh? In reality, O'Neill told his Eyes on the Prize interviewer that he knew nothing about a plan to assassinate Chairman Fred. He'd already supplied the FBI with so many drawings, Mitchell's request for this one felt pretty routine. Chicago police murdered Chairman Fred and Black Panther Mark Clark early on the morning of December 4th, 1969. O'Neill says he didn't learn about the assassination until later that day. O'Neill continued working for the FBI. One of those cases involved a Chicago cop who was convicted of murder in 1973. During that trial, O'Neill was out as an FBI informant. The Black Panthers read about it on the front page of the Chicago Tribune the next day. O'Neill temporarily went into federal witness protection. In the real interview he did for Eyes on the Prize, William O'Neill was asked if he felt any remorse for his role in Chairman's murder. I didn't feel like I had done anything. I didn't walk in there with guns. I didn't shoot him. I felt somewhat like I was betrayed. I could have been caught in that raid. I felt like I was expendable. I'm not going to, I no, I, I'm not going to sit here now and take the responsibility for the raid. You know, uh, I'm not going to do that. I didn't pull the trigger. As for his work in forming on the Black Panthers, O'Neill said he felt good about that. He compared himself to blacks who signed up to fight in Vietnam. There was a war here in the street, and uh, I was recruited early, and I joined sides early, and uh, I didn't straddle the fence. I gave it all I could as long as I could. Do I feel like I betrayed someone? Absolutely not. I had no allegiance to the Panthers. The Eyes on the Prize 2 documentary aired on PBS the next year. It includes the story of the Chicago Panthers and some of O'Neill's interview. That night, O'Neill ran onto a nearby expressway and was killed by a car. It was ruled a suicide. 
Judas and the Black Messiah begins with Lakeith Stanfield as O'Neill and ends with footage of the real Bill O'Neill. His character also drops in along the way to narrate. As the man who helped set up his father's assassination, the portrayal of William O'Neill was a big issue for Chairman Fred Hampton Jr. Initially, um, I took issue with O'Neill's character. O'Neill's character being the narrator. Yeah. He frames the movie at the beginning and the end. Absolutely, yes, yes, yes. Yes, yes. That was a concern, you know, struggle. And I still struggle with that. I still struggle with that. So I, I try to go into the mindset of the people's first viewing and first concept, you know what I'm saying? So for William O'Neill's character, you know what I'm saying, this, this same individual, people's first contact with the party's history, you know what I'm saying, say, wait a minute, this is the individual that's responsible for the fact, you know, who played, excuse me, who played a role. I want to emphasize that because it was not just William O'Neill, you know what I'm saying, but who played a role that deprived us of the opportunity of to be, you know what I'm saying, to get it directly with um, Chairman Fred. As much as director Shaka King relied on his research in making the film, he was also conscious of Chairman Junior's wishes. It was very important that we not portray Fred and William O'Neill as friends. This was also a critical point for Black Panthers like Che Brooks, who has said you'd be hard-pressed to find even a photo of Chairman Fred Hampton Sr. and William O'Neill together. He was not the bodyguard for Chairman Fred, in no respect. Had very little to do with our chairman. And so we tried to be subtle about it, but there are not that many scenes with them together, just one-on-one. And their moments of closeness are not like, I love you, man. They're like, you're all right, Bill. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, it's like, you're all right, Bill. Hey. So where you want to go? You hungry? What? What do you want? Headquarters. Headquarters it is, boy. You know, there's one moment, and it's a it's it's a very important moment in the movie, certainly in in I think in both Fred's character and William's character when Fred comes out of prison and he sees that his headquarters that was burned down has been rebuilt while he was away. And uh he's moved. How how do y'all well, he was burned down. I saw. I saw. The whole neighborhood came out. Pushers, grannies, crowns, everybody. Especially this one right here. He practically oh, left the child. On, man, Don't man, be man. modest, brother. Almost lived here. Wow. Anywhere there's people, he's power. Right on. Thank you, brother. In the movie. Fred is like, wow, it works. I had this vision of people coming together and being able to do great things, and we've seen it working, but like to come out and find out, not only is the institution intact, but the building has been rebuilt and is looking better than it looked before I was gone, you know? Um, And that's an important moment for him, and it's really important for O'Neill because he sees the emotion in Fred when he says, thank you. And I will say, and I, I... did read somewhere that because O'Neill was the handyman, that he did significantly contribute to the rebuilding of headquarters after the fire that summer. And, you know, if in fact that is the case, I felt comfortable having Fred. I mean, it was also, I needed it for the scene. I needed it for the arc 
of O'Neill's character. Fred says, thank you. And even though you never see O'Neill really become a Panther from an ideological perspective, I do believe that the greatness of Fred Hampton affected everyone that encountered him. And when you get a personal thank you like that from him, it's like... It carries weight. Yeah, it carries weight. We're going to take a really quick break. And when we come back, Lakeith Stanfield talks about his role as William O'Neill. When I found out that O'Neill had killed himself, it all kind of made sense. Imagine the burden that you have to carry having to live your life in fear that long. But that also let me know that he had a conscience. He just went against it. And so that's also what I wanted to show, too, in the characters, that he wasn't just a conscienceless fool. He was a very smart individual that, you know, fear got the best of. This podcast is brought to you by Warner Brothers Pictures, Judas and the Black Messiah, the Critics' Choice WGA and SAG Award-nominated film, and winner of the Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actor, Daniel Kaluuya. Now playing in theaters and streaming exclusively on HBO Max for 31 days. It's time the world knows the truth about Chairman Fred Hampton. Watch the film, know his name, share his legacy. Judas and the Black Messiah. Rated R. Hello there and welcome back. This is the Judas and the Black Messiah official podcast. I'm Elvis Mitchell, here with Chairman Fred Hampton. Chairman, how are you, sir? I'm good on this end. Good to be back on here with you, my brother. I'm glad to be back here with you. And Today we have a guest. He plays Bill O'Neill, the car thief turned FBI informant who infiltrates the Panthers and ultimately plays a key role in Fred Hampton's murder. He is also known to us from Get Out, Sorry to Bother You, one of my favorites, The Photograph, Atlanta. Ladies and gentlemen, Keith Stanfield, how are you, sir? I'm quite all right. Thank you. I think this is interesting to me that you're so often playing guys who are trying to figure out who they are. And in some ways, Bill O'Neill is one of those guys, isn't he? He is. He is. Um, and he pushed me to be in a different way that I wasn't expecting. You know, Shaka sent me the script, and I thought I was going to be playing uh, Chairman Fred. And... Uh, he was like, nah, we want you to play Bill. I was like, who the fuck is Bill? And then, you know, then I, I found out and uncovered who, who Bill and there was. I was like, oh, man, I do not want to play that. Like, you know, I was staunchly against it. So I had to understand why I was in such conflict and, like, how do I break down things in myself to be able to feel the character in a real way? I had many times where I just I had to ask Shaka, you know, like, am I, am I even doing the right thing playing this person? I got so lost in the sauce of the performance that I became, you know, internally just conflicted about it, whether or not I was doing the right thing, whether or not I was representing my people, because that's what I really want to do. Uh, and whether I was doing it in this way, it was just the right way. I know it's going to be a lot of people who see this and it'll be like, yo, I hate him. But at the same time, I think it ended up being something that served Chairman Fred. And that's what I wanted to do. So I had to deal with the back and forth in my own morality and things that I thought, I, that what's right, what's wrong maybe in a similar way to, to what O'Neill was going through. Because I know when he heard Chairman Fred talking, he was moved by that. You know, I know he was moved by that, but he had to continue to play the role that he was playing because that's what he thought that he needed to do to survive. So 
all the questions that, you know, everybody has internally about decisions that they make, I think here will be put on display. What type of person do you feel like you are in your heart? More of a Jesus figure, like Fred, or more of a Judas figure, like O'Neill? Yeah, I think of you as, a, as an actor, as somebody who finds people who are trying to figure out who they are and actually taking on other guises, like in Sorry to Bother You. This idea of trying things on literally right in front of us. You you played a lot of these guys. I just wonder if that's something like in your core DNA that you find yourself attracted to or other people even see in you, even when you don't. Yes, people do see that in me, uh, even when I don't see it. You know, it's taken me a while to get to understand that um, an internal dialogue that I've been having with myself silently outside of everything. You know, I've had to like have a therapist, which which was something that I was against at first because I thought, you know, that might be uh, not an adequate way to face your demons and face the, the parts of you that you don't want to see. But I realize, you know, as I get older, that, you know, those things are important and, and steps and taken to grow and understand it. So when I see characters that go through that type of transition, I understand things that you believe before that you thought were true, um, that you held on to. Sometimes as you grow, you realize that ain't the way. Uh, so, yeah, I, I like to see characters that find that moment or that person or that event that changes the course of their actions and makes them realize things in a different way, you know, whether that be good or bad. Yeah, because, I mean, you were talking about the cost for you, and I wonder if you felt that cost in playing O'Neill to some extent, too, when this ended. You know, there are aspects of O'Neill I'm still trying to shake off, you know. How do you mean? I had never had a panic attack in my life. You know, I didn't really know what that was, anxiety and things like that. With this role came those things, you know. I ran out the trailer several times just wondering, you know, I'll be in the middle of getting makeup done. I just got to take a second to figure out where I'm at, what I'm doing, why I'm doing it. In the makeup room, they'll have pictures of, of, of Chairman Fred. When I'm sitting there getting my makeup done, I'm looking at that, and I'm thinking about what I'm playing and what I'm doing. I just... It's a lot of things running through your mind, you know. So in a lot of ways, taking on this role made me feel like I was actually O'Neill, you know. And so it, it got really tough at times to to reconcile that and um, deal with the idea that I might be someone that would do something like this or that I could be someone that would do something like this and that I have to be someone that's doing this right now, you know. And playing with Daniel, who, you know, was just uh, so much in the pocket, and I love Daniel, too, as a person. So it made me feel sometimes that, like, oh, I'm doing this not only to Chairman Fred in the story, but to Daniel. But, you know, you start trying to find, a, find the truth in it and realize that at the end of the day, this is what I feel. This is what this character feels has to be done. And that's it. Chairman, I want to bring you in on this and have you talk about the first time you and Lakeith connected and what that felt like to you, knowing who he's going to be playing and, and even hearing these conflicts he's talking about now and that. Even prior to prior to um, touching bases, you know, uh, Lakeith, there was some. These are some of the struggles that we that we engaged in about that. From whose perspective it's coming from, and I've been known of uh, being objective. I'm known for being objective. I recall a new member coming to our organization. And they were saying, "Well, I'm only familiar with certain individuals in the Black Panther Party." I said, "Well, that's well, you don't know what the Black Panther Party is. You must study the good, the bad, and the ugly." And in the same breath, acknowledging that there are some. I mean, you know, I'm saying this objectively, but the, again, the reality is these are stings that still stick in the souls. And, you know what I'm saying? They're cut. These are cuts that, you know what I'm saying? They hit hard in the hearts of our people. Let me ask you this. So as you're saying this, 
chairman, and you're talking about the objective, but then there's the other side too, things that hit hard in the hearts of our people. You're getting close to this actor who's going to be portraying this figure who's responsible for where you are in your life right now. And I just wonder, because Keith himself is talking about how all this is this constant echo chamber in his own life, and you're getting to experience that too, of seeing this guy who's realizing this person who looms large in your own in your own psyche. But one of the dynamics in particular with the Black Panther Party and also with the assassination of Chairman Fred, the party heightened the contradictions where it was a clear cut. Whatever side of the political spectrum you, you, you reside on, it was very clear. It was not it was not vague about O'Neill, the agent provocateur, it was not vague about Chairman Fred being assassinated. The lines were drawn. There's no there's no straddling the fence. You know, so there's no question who O'Neill was. It's documented. The Quarantel Pro was a reality. The Panther Party was targeted. Chairman Fred was assassinated. So that's a, a reality. And also, many people can take it more from certain characters. Because there's an old axiom that says that the, the world would have never known about Jesus had it not been for Judas. Yeah. I mean, this hearing you talk about this brings something to mind I want to ask Lakeith about anyway, which is... What was it like with all these contradictions banging around in your character, playing against Chairman Fred, who always knew who he was? It was um, both challenging and inspiring at the same time. I I felt an appreciation for Daniel's ability to transform. I think that's what I look to as a sort of spiritual metaphor for how O'Neill might have looked at uh, Chairman Fred, in a sense, for his astute and uh, his sort of uh, strong ability to stand on two feet. You can't be a coward and be around a hero and not pick up some of them hero vibes and be inspired by them. And sometimes people are inspired to hatred by them as well because they are meeting something that they aren't able to tap into. So I was taking my appreciation for the performance and sort of weaving it into um, how one might think about someone as a powerful leader. And then also I have so much respect for, for Chairman Fred anyway. So when it, when it came down to the speeches and it came down to the performance that was involved in that and everything that I saw, I thought that the spirit of a, a real big soldier and, and, and a person that was fighting for me before I even got here, you know, I let the frustration of the fact that I wasn't that, even though I respected that, be part of what made it, uh, what, what was made apparent in the character. So I had to learn how to reconcile those things and sort of uh, siphon it through in order to to be able to live, walk in a true space with the character. Because what I didn't want to do was come on how I felt about O'Neill when I first heard about him. My eyes on the prize came out. Like, fuck that motherfucker. You know, that damn rat. You know what I said? That's how I felt. But I didn't want to play him how I felt because then it would have looked like that's how I felt. You know, it would have been like, I'm a rat. I'm playing a rat. And I'm like, you know, I think there are a little bit more levels to it. So I wanted to kind of unlock those things. But, you know, it was a challenge. This is the biggest role you've had in the period piece, isn't it? I mean, you've had smaller roles in other things before. And even though I'm sure you own a lot of very beautiful vintage pieces yourself, but living in that stuff and and wearing those shoes, because those shoes are very different, as I'm sure you find out the hard way, um, what, that li- <laughs> what that literally does to you, because it changes the way you walk, doesn't it? I mean, talk about that a little bit. It does. It changes the way you walk, changes the way you stand. I also don't wear very tight clothing. I like to be quite comfy. No, it was it was it was different. You know, it was uh, it put me in the mood of the space and the place. But you know what? I have an appreciation for that time in Black America because I feel like people was rising up. People gave a fuck. 
it was more about, or so it seems to me, uh, expressing oneself in their truest form. Zap me back to when we was cool as hell with each other, you feel me? Like, I know it's always gonna be uh, struggles, you know, people gonna, ain't gonna always agree on everything, but at least we love being black. But yeah, it took a little bit of a curve to learn how to walk in them shoes, cause I, <laughs> I mean, I'm from California, we don't even wear boots like that, you know? It was, it was a different thing to learn how to, you know, learn how to get over that curve, but, but it's cool, you know, it's all love. You realize, you know, we go through the same struggles and we still the same people, we just a new version. What I'm going to do here is turn to you, Chairman, because one of the things I take away from this movie is it's almost like, in some way, Chairman never gave up on Bill O'Neill. Chairman Frey was upfront, was very clear. We going to say he was in some of his speeches. He would say, "We know the police probably get they sitting here. They probably got uh, uh, recorders and they stuck in their afros." He was, you know, so he had no romanticism about the struggle. Chairman Frey was upfront that we were being targeted and that we were willing, and many of us would subsequently pay the ultimate price, our life. He was a revolutionary. You know what I'm saying? The Cointel Pro was real. And the Black Panther Party and Chairman Fred was proactive about that. They came through the door saying, we're going to be targeted. When you came in you were some, uh, for membership, and you want to romanticize revolution, like, oh, let's get some bean bags and just drink some ju- green juice and we're going to be free. A lot of cats talking about, well, let's just dress like we in Africa, we're going to be free. Chairman Fred said, you want, you okay, dig. You know, in Africa, they wearing 357, the bandoliers across their chest also. There are real repercussions with revolution, and they were upfront about that. And revolution is inclusive of not just leather jackets and berets. It's inclusive of Asian provocateurs. It's inclusive of betrayal. You know what I'm saying? But also, it's inclusive of a certain amount of freedom when you're fighting back. It's inspiring. It's a dynamic of you know how you view relationship. I'm going to say this. Many people who are deprived of having something to believe in, a cause. And you know what I'm saying? That question has to be brought to you. What would you do? Mitchell. Hey, listen, I'm out, Roy. I'm out. Calm down. Calm down, Bill. Don't you tell me to fucking calm down, all right? I was almost killed, man. Now, friends in jail. I did the damn job, and I'm out. That's not how it works. What the fuck do you mean that's not how it works? Why don't you give me one good reason why I don't just book it out of here right now? Because... Because, as I've mentioned, it's a year and a half for the stolen car and five years for impersonating a federal officer. And if you run, I will hunt you down. Fuck up. Fuck! One of the things that I really feel in in your portrayal of O'Neill is that to the very end, he recognized that Chairman was still fighting for his soul. I think um, it'd be hard to be around someone like Chairman Fred and not pick up um, the idea that, you know, he's definitely fighting for something bigger than himself. And and I think that's what makes it more of a, a sort of Jesus metaphor to me because he's only expressing what God knows, which is a universal, it's universal. It's not like a particular thing. That's the opposite of what O'Neill was at. He was on a selfish path, you know, and um, was attempting to do things that would save his ass or, or put himself in a position where, he was able to live more comfortably or live in the ideal space that he thought he might be trying to live in. And, and the way that we have depicted Chairman Fred in this, and, um, it's, it's a sort of uh, exact uh, opposite of that, a more godlike, divine um, thing about uh, things outside of yourself and the collective, the community, uh, the people. In our next and last episode, the woman who played Chairman Senior's girlfriend and Chairman Junior's mother, Dominique Fishback as Black Panther Deborah Johnson. I felt like, wow, it's in my DNA. Maybe in this moment, 
Maybe it's about our ancestors who, who did cry, who had to cry, who had to release. Maybe this is the release. Plus, more from Sam McKinney and Billy J. Brooks, the Illinois Panthers who knew and worked closely with Chairman Fred Hampton. We clearly recognized that our politics were considered subversive, anti-American. But we also knew that America was so structured against our survival that we had to develop our own structure. And that was something they refused to have, and they still refuse to have it. But our struggle will continue to that last drop. This podcast is a production of 99% Invisible, Proximity Media, and Warner Brothers. The series is written by Christopher Johnson, our supervising producer. Roman Mars is our editor. Our senior producer is Delaney Hall. Abby Madon is our associate producer. Special thanks also to producer Emmett Fitzgerald. Our music was composed by Sean Rial. Graham Hayshire is our fact checker. Bryson Barnes is our mix engineer. Special thanks to Layla Wills, our sync producer in Chicago. Some of the audio in this episode comes to us courtesy of the Henry Hampton Collection at the libraries of the Washington University in St. Louis. And I'm your host, Elvis Mitchell. See you next time. Radiotopia.